everyone to the podcast of the Altruism, Morality and Social Solidarity section of the American Sociological Association. My name is Valentina Cantori and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Southern California and also a member of the Communications Committee for this section and that's why I'm here today. For those of you who might be unfamiliar with our podcast, the Altruism, Morality and Social Solidarity section launched this podcast initiative last year to engage in conversations with scholars whose work advances uh, the sociology of altruism, morality and social solidarity and I am so, so pleased uh, to have here with us today Dr. Hajar Yazdiha. Welcome, Haj. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We are very excited to have you. So I just want to give you all a brief introduction in case you uh, do not work, don't, do not know the work of um, Dr. Yazdiha. Hajar um, Yazdiha is a professor of sociology, a faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute, and a Cyprus-Azieri Global Scholar. Uh, Dr. Yesdi had received her PhD in sociology uh, from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and her research examines the mechanisms underlying the politics of inclusion and exclusion as they shape ethno-racial identities, collective behavior, and political culture. His work crosses subfields of race and ethnicity, migration, social movement, culture, and law using mixed methods and has been published in journals including Social Problems, Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, Mobilization, and Ethnic and Racial Studies. Uh, and uh, she's the author of uh, a book titled The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, published with Princeton University Press, of which we will be, I think, mostly talking about today. And that has been published this year, right, Haj? That's right. May 2023. Oh, wow. So we are, you know, just fresh, fresh for us to kind of uh, think with. I'm very excited to uh, to engage in a conversation with you today. Uh, so to just start and get our listeners to uh, get to know you a little bit better, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be interested in what you study? Yeah, I love that question. And, you know, honestly, beyond the academic bio, I think there's so much uh, sort of history and depth we could think about, you know, so part of it is I did, you know, say in my bio that I study social movements and race and immigration. And those three subfields, which I often describe as sort of my big three, are also really tied up in my own personal history. And so I'm the child of Iranian immigrants, and I'm technically an immigrant myself. I was actually born in Berlin, Germany, and I grew up in Northern Virginia, and so, you know, living on the West Coast is sort of new for me as well. There's sort of like that place-based question that comes in when I think about culture and how our ideas of place and memory change across space. Um, and so I think for me, a lot of the questions that I think about are these questions of social solidarity and belonging, and they are definitely rooted in my own experience as the child of immigrants, especially in these predominantly white communities, sort of grappling with these questions about who am I? How does it compare to how other people see me? What are the sort of limits of who I get to be in these spaces? And then what are the kind of social forces that bring us together and keep us apart? So a lot of these larger questions that are also really pivotal in the sociology of altruism and morality and social solidarity. Yeah, that's great. Yes, I guess, you know, inside all of us, there is a story that somehow brought us so close to, to sociology. So it was it was so nice to hear uh, to hear yours. And definitely what you said is very relevant to our field uh, of study. Um, and, you know, broadly, 
what do you think and how do you think I would say the sociology of altruism, morality and social solidarity kind of influence even though maybe tangentially um, in some way your research and teaching? You know, it's so funny because I think people often think of the sociology of morality and social solidarity as a kind of, you know, like a separate subfield. It's a separate section. And when you really think about the core questions that the section is asking, especially the, the sort of core theories that found the section, honestly, every section has something to say to this section. You know, like I think that these sorts of um, underlying questions about the structures and the resources and the power that, you know, construct our identities, the moral meanings that we assign to them, um, even thinking about socio-historically patterned complexes of meaning and what they mean for everyday political and cultural processes. I think all of these sort of larger sociological questions, these sort of perennial questions that we've grappled with, you know, for centuries are really rooted in a sociology of morality and social solidarity. Right, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, I think, I think uh, you know, in so many ways, maybe it should not even be a subsection of the right. uh, American Sociological Association as we are all asking questions about how to live together or how we, you know, cannot really live together. And so um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great point that you bring up. And I'm sure that our listeners will, um, you know, have some foot foot thought with what you've just said. Um, just to jump kind of into your amazing book that I, um, I've truly enjoyed reading. Um, how do you think this specific topic uh, that you tackle and, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about what the book is all about. And then how do you think, um, you know, the, the, the struggle for the people's king really connects to this issue of solidarity and morality? Yeah, well, thank you so much for the kind words. I feel like you know, we spend years writing these things and you never know if anybody's actually going to read them. And <laughs> even if they do, then oftentimes you don't hear from anybody. So you sort of assume they hated it. So anyway, thank you for that. Um, okay, so I think, you know, the sort of short answer about the book without, you know, sort of giving away everything and talking about it by itself for like three hours <laughs> is that it's a book that's about the political uses and misuses of civil rights memory and the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in politics, and then also the consequences of these misuses of memory. And so when we think about the sociology of you know, altruism, morality, social solidarity, I think what's interesting is that even at face value, Dr. King is this symbol of morality. And one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is how he becomes this symbol, how he becomes this sort of politically loaded symbol that gets to be used in all sorts of ways. And in a lot of ways that actually co-opt the meanings that he was initially rooted in and actually misuse them against causes that he would have opposed. And so when you think about Dr. King as, you know, sort of like this moral cloak, he becomes this moral cloak of legitimacy that all sorts of groups are trying on and trying to use for, you know, anti-Kingian causes. So, you know, in the book, I talk about how he gets mythologized as this kind of moral compass of American identity. And he really becomes this reminder to America of the promise of the sort of unrelenting march forward you know, the idea that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I show specifically throughout several empirical chapters, how he gets used in the service of constructing these moral and racial and national boundaries around national identity. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a very rich book. And I think your empirical analysis is absolutely convincing. And I wanted to kind of delve deeper into that um, because uh, I think you really show through the empirical chapters uh, what you call the gnarling branches of the civil rights movement, how they get kind of used and misused by different groups. And what I really liked about the book is how you organize the chapters with this contrastive cases um, of different um, social movements and their kind of um, you know, more, uh, con you know, kind of counterparts and opponents and how like the, there is this misuse uh, that uh, goes on uh, within this movement. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to some concrete case um, from your book that uh, you think can help our audience uh, understand better um, what you mean by, um, you know, using the collective memory of the civil rights movements for the purpose of building solidarity, but also for kind of some of the uh, opposite uh, ends that were that you called anti-Kingians in so many ways. Yes. So I think what's really interesting to me, and I think it's one of the ideas that I've continued to think about even well past the conclusion of the research for this book, is the way that collective memory can be used, as you say, as both a bridge and a wedge. And I was building on Christina Simcoe's really wonderful work on collective memory. And you know, she shows how the commemoration of terrorist events, for example, you know, these sort of traumatic memories, they can become a bridge. So they can unite people through this kind of moral universalism that really brings people together under a shared identity. But you know, one of the things I was finding is also that there are forms of memory, memory work specifically that actually harden the boundaries between groups. And so when I was researching for the book, and as you said, I do these paired cases because I think it's so important to show that when groups are mobilizing, there's always a rival movement. And it may be a rival movement who's working sort of in, you know, sort of parallel, might have related goals, but, you know, is also fighting and clamoring for public attention and resources and power. Um, but in this case, I'm looking specifically at opposing groups because I think the opposition is so central to shaping the way that groups strategize and the kind of limits of the success of their strategies. So just to bring us in on a kind of concrete example that illustrates exactly what we're talking about today, chapter three in the book centers on these moral battles between the LGBTQ rights movement and the family values movement. And I jump into two specific events about a decade apart. So we're looking at two different political contexts in terms of the political administration. Um, so we're looking at this case in 2000 in Miami when Bush is president. This is W.B. Bush, second guy. Um, and then we're also looking at the Obama administration, the Amendment 1 campaign in North Carolina in 2011. So about a decade apart, but then what comes out is this pattern where you notice that in both cases, LGBTQ rights movement is using the memory of the civil rights movement as this bridge. So it's this way of invoking Dr. King to talk about the beloved community, to talk about the fact that Dr. King's vision of humanity, of society, was of a space where everybody would be loved, where everybody would be included. And using that sort of beautiful vision of the beloved community becomes this really critical tool for uniting folks across race and class. Although, of course, as we go into in the book, there's much more complexity. There's sort of the internal anti-Blackness, internal classism that you know, the movement has to contend with at a certain point. But then what's really fascinating and disturbing is how the family values movement 
then co-opts the memory of Dr. King and his Christianity and his morality to claim that he himself would have been opposed to homosexuality. And I describe these really sort of egregious cases where they print these flyers with images of two men kissing. And it says, Dr. King would be outraged. Like he did not live and die for two men to be able to, you know, <laughs> be engaged in this sort of way. And so it's like this very disturbing reversal of what he stood for. It's this disturbing use of King's moral legitimacy, moral symbolism, to work against his cause and work against his very notion of the beloved community. And I think it's a really valuable way to think about the way that our cultural symbols can become either moral bridges or moral wedges. Right. And I think just to, uh, to piggyback on what you just said, um, it seems like, you know, your book is also talking uh, to activists themselves and to really all of us um, to try to think about, you know, if we want to build the society that Dr. King envisioned, like then how can we prevent these distortions? What can we do? Um, and, and how do you envision then your book to be used and spread by uh, not just sociologists, but activists themselves? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I mean, because I think it's so much of the work that we do as sociologists can just kind of get limited to our own spaces. And listen, you and me, Valentina, like I know we love to talk about theory and we can just talk <laughs> about theory all day long and it's a lot of fun. It can be really right. generative, <laughs> right? But it's like when you really think about the questions that we're asking, especially when it comes to social solidarity, when it comes to the bonds between people and the sort of larger questions about the world we wanna live in, right? And the type of life we want to lead, I think it becomes so critical then to ground it within communities and engage with the actual folks that we're studying, which I've seen you do in your work. And I think it's incredible. Mm -hmm. I think what's really important for me is to, to draw out that I'm actually inspired by and building on the work of the activists that I describe in the book. And something I say in the preface is, you know, that I wanna center their own words. I wanna center their own accounts of these historical moments. And one of the critiques I've actually gotten is that my own, my own experience, my own voice is missing from the book. And it's something that I've been thinking about ever since, because I do always wonder about, of course, it's important to have like the positionality statement and to continually reflect on where we are within the text. But when we're writing on another community's experience, I just wonder about, you know, where do we position ourselves within that story? So anyway, that's sort of a larger question that gets away from the one we're thinking about here. But, but I think it's intertwined because for me in being inspired by activists, I didn't see it as a book that was going to help them per se so much as amplify the work that they're doing and talk mm -hmm. about how critical grassroots activism, specifically the grassroots activism of Black communities has been in you know, preventing these distorted memories from taking full hold over all these years. You know, so one of the claims in the book is about how these political misuses of civil rights memory, of Dr. King's memory, really become the mainstream memory over time. And you see this in the case in Florida, for example, where Dr. King's memory was invoked to justify the ban on critical race theory. His words have been used to justify the repeal of affirmative action, the repeal of the voting rights legislation. And so that sort of egregious co-optation shows that for 
for that to happen in a sort of national scale like this, it, it's not just a sort of one-off, you know, sort of a rhetorical flub. This is a long-term intentional strategy. And so for me, drawing out how grassroots activists have been resisting this at every turn and that we are not sort of, you know, starting anew when we ask like, what are we supposed to do? What we really should be doing is listening to them. And I think one of the big things that comes up is, you know, I talk about Reverend Barber in the book, and this is uh, the Black Reverend from North Carolina who spearheaded the Moral Mondays movement. This is actually a movement that also emerges out of, you know, some of the, the craziness of the anti-gay Amendment 1 campaign in North Carolina in 2011. And I talk about how he's really channeling the spirit of the civil rights movement to bring morality back into the civic sphere to kind of resist this growing swell of these anti-democratic politics that at the time are governing North Carolina, but that really come to govern the nation by the time we get to the Trump era. And one of the newer moves has been, you know, he's joined with a ton of multiracial activists to revive the Poor People's Campaign, which you might recall was one of the last things Dr. King was trying to do in the final year of his life was to spearhead this movement that would be multiracial, be across class, and that would be a movement against economic exploitation, against the sort of evils of capitalism. And so now the Poor People's Campaign has been picked up again. But again, you know, I think it's easy to forget that folks are fighting back constantly. And so I, I you know, I'm rambling at this point because, <laughs> right, like what I really want to draw out is just how important it is that we look to the folks who have actually been doing the work right. instead of sort of trying to claim that, you know, like this is what we should do, right? And so I think that's that's always sort of a, a hard, like a fine sort of line to walk for a sociologist who look at things a lot of times from a, an eagle's eye view. And what I'll say just lastly on this question, because it is so good is I was doing a book event recently with a community activist um, named Shea Stewart Boulay, and she is executive director of, of Community Change, which is like a really important anti-racist organization in New England. And one of the things she said about the book, because I was doing a sort of lot, a lot of just sort of talking about, okay, well, I wanna hear from you. How does this resonate or does it resonate with the type of work you've been doing? Mm -hmm. Her take was that this is the missing piece. And I think, you know, one of the things she said was how it really draws together the historical context, the fact that for a lot of anti-racist activists, they've been thinking about this, you know, sort of putting out fires as they emerge. A lot of them are thinking about it as a, an issue that arose in the reactionary backlash to the Obama administration. And when you take the long view like this, which is one of our skills as sociologists, taking that long view, that eagle's eye view, I think it's a lot easier to see, you know, where the missing pieces are and then how to put them together. No, thank you for that long answer. I enjoyed every moment of it. And, you know, I think you touch on such important things to think about, especially me as a PhD student, and I think other PhD candidates that will be listening to this, thinking about, you know, one of the first things you said, like where you position yourself in your book, as also we approach the dissertation, these are questions that we have to think about, especially when we write about, you know, social movements or, you know, uh, like other groups that are, have been, you know, historically involved in resisting, you know, white supremacy, etc. Like, I think these are, these are very important questions that we have to keep in mind. And, and I really like that you shared your book with an activist and got their feedback um, on, on it. I think this is also like such a, 
such a good practice that is becoming more commonplace um, yeah. in sociology, but somehow, you know, like it's still uh, not considered, you know, I think standard. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, that 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 is great. So thinking ahead uh, and thinking about some of the stuff you've learned uh, by carrying out uh, your, I imagine, decade-long research at this point for this book and, um you know, what are the things that you think, you know, deserve more exploration that still we need to, to address when thinking about collective memory and how it sustains or hinders solidarity? Yeah, I mean, I, for such a long time, I've been interested in these questions of what brings us together, but then particularly what keeps us apart. And researching this book showed me just how much our conceptions of the past matter for our conceptions of how we're connected in the present and especially how we're connected in the future. So one of the things I've been thinking through is I'm really interested in how memory is linked to the imagined future. And right now I'm doing a new project where I'm interviewing a lot of Gen Z activists to think about what their imagined future looks like, especially in the wake of having come of age during COVID. And one thing that's come up a lot is that, you know, the social psychological literature tells us all about how our individual ideas of the imagined future are shaped by our understanding of the past. And so we're effectively evaluating the present and our options, you know, our potential array of actions by drawing on our memories. And this really directs the action that we take into the future. But for me, I've been thinking about this in a more collective way because one of the things that I thought about a lot in the book was how there was this power in the collective imagination. And in this case, it was specifically the collective black imagination, this kind of emancipatory potential of the future that was decoupled in a lot of ways from the past because it was something that had not been, but that could be. So this is something I'm really exploring is thinking about the potential of social solidarity by rethinking the way that memory is linked to the future? And is there a way that we can think about departing from what we've actually experienced in the past, what we know of the past, and think more about a future that could actually be liberatory? I love that. And I think lots of, um, you know, contemporary activists, you know, groups, etc, really sit down and think and make this exercise of imaginative futures, uh, a core aspect of their activism. So I, you know, I can totally um, relate to the importance of the project you're uh, embarking uh, on right now, Haj, and I can't wait to read more about your future work on the topic, obviously. Um, so I think I have a final question for you, but one that we probably you know, kind of already touched upon um, initially, uh, but what is, in light of your experience uh, with your research, um, how do you envision uh, the future of the sociology of altruism, morality, and social solidarity? Mm, yeah, like, I think exactly like you said, it's one of the, the first things I said when we started, talking, <laughs> which is that I do think integrating it more into the way we think about the work of other sections mm -hmm. could be really valuable. And I say this specifically as someone who has, I have a chapter coming out. Let me just plug myself. I have a chapter mm -hmm. coming out in the second handbook of morality and it's bridging the sociologies of morality and migration. And so mm -hmm. I'm really thinking about the moral underpinnings of borders, of policies and of immigrants as they're socially constructed. 
And I think ugh, like for me, sitting and synthesizing theory is one of my nerdy favorite things to do. <laughs> so I could sit here all day and think about the different ways we could, you know, incorporate a sociology of morality and, and sol social solidarity and altruism within literally anything, like organizations, neighborhoods, education, um, just all across the board. I think there are so many ways we should be thinking about just the deeper underlying values that found not just the way that this is playing out in the real world, but also the way that we're approaching these theories, the way that we're approaching our research projects. So what are our own sort of conceptions of a social solidarity, of the good life, of the future of society? And I don't expect that we would all agree on that. And I think that's something that we should be thinking about. That's sort of like the meta-analysis that could be really valuable for us that as we're doing the kind of self-reflection about where we want to be a sociologist, where we want to see sociology go, which I think brings me to a last point, which is really like what, the, what you're doing here with this podcast, which I think is more of a connection with public sociology, because I think a lot of the sort of messages of the sociology of morality and social solidarity are really rooted in the things that folks think about on a day-to-day -day basis. And so the storytelling is really built in there. I think there is a powerful way to connect the research to the issues that policymakers and activists and nonprofits are contending with on a day-to-day -day basis. And also to really draw out why it all matters. Because I think that's the part that so often gets lost when we get you know, really sucked into the nitty gritty of our research designs and our findings and our right. analyses, right? Like I think that larger question of why are we doing this? What is it that we're striving for? doesn't have to be, you know, an activist project, whatever we want to make that mean. But I do think there should be a point at the end of all of it. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's, you know, I think why, as you said, we are here with the idea of this podcast was really started with making, you know, like, the the sociological knowledge more accessible even beyond the section and even beyond the association so that um we could we could have conversations to to make an impact somehow um not only within the academy but also outside of it so i think i think um uh, you know it's amazing that we're here and thank you again hash for partaking uh in this and taking time to talk uh, with us and um thank you so much this was so fun Yes, it was. And uh, yes, uh, stay connected for the next episode that will be coming up soon. Thank you, everyone. Bye bye. Hush, bye.